Welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on Apple and Google Podcasts and sponsored by the Jetliner Cabins ebook app. This is episode 64 of the show where we talk about how the airline passenger experience is evolving in a mobile, social, vocal world. I'm Mary Kirby and I'm joined by my co-host Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mary. I hope you are as well. I'm planning lots of aviation activities for this year. I'm going to be... Uh, I'm listening to Dick and Bert Rutan in a couple of weeks, and I'm planning on going down to Sun and Fun in Florida, and oh, just a whole lot of aviation events this year for me. So I'm really, really excited about that. Have geek-tastic, Max. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on the road a little bit myself lately, too, which has been fun. So um, and we'll get you into have. that here shortly. Yeah, but before we get started, we'd like to thank the Jetliner Cabins eBook app for sponsoring this podcast. Jetliner Cabins is the story of how scientists, designers, engineers, maintenance, and marketing specialists have transformed the stark tubular interiors of typical airliners into unique settings. This ebook app invites readers to explore the expertise, discover the details, and enjoy the fascinating world of Jetliner Cabins. Visit Jetliner Cabins to learn more and to download the app. Yes, well, let's take a look at some of the PaxX news stories that are making headlines. First... Airbus is considering building a larger version of the A220, previously known as the Bombardier C-Series. Now, we've talked a lot about how the A220 is a passenger-pleasing aircraft in terms of seat layout and seat width. Mary, you recently attended an Airbus North America tour, and you even visited the A220 assembly plant in Mirabel, as well as some other Airbus sites. What would an A220 stretch entail, and how serious do you think Airbus is about pursuing it? Well, Max, I have to confess that when Airbus management admitted during this Airbus North America tour that they're eyeing a larger derivative of the A220, which has been informally dubbed by industry observers as the A220-500, um, I got a major case of deja vu. It was like nearly a decade ago that the Air Insight Consultancy conducted a study into the economics of a stretch derivative of the aircraft formerly known as the Bombardier C-Series. And while Bombardier said at the time that any such talk of a stretch was speculation, it nonetheless trademarked CS500 and, in fact, CS900 to protect the designations at the time. And I wrote about this for Flight Global, and it was really fun going back to some of these old articles dated 2010, which yes. means I'm old, Max, you know. But anyways, I found some so, of those articles myself. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of fun. I'm like, oh, there's my byline. Um, so effectively, Bombardier was thinking along these lines long before Airbus acquired a majority stake in the C-Series program. So fast forward to today, and Airbus did tell a journalist on this North America tour that there is a strong potential to develop a larger derivative, but only after it has ramped up production of the current A220-100 and A220-300. And importantly, the 300 is significantly outselling the 100, which is no doubt giving Airbus further food for thought on launch a stretch. But the truth is, Max, and this is pertinent to our PAX-X conversation, Bombardier can still pack more seats into the current variants, so without even stretching. So the larger of the two, the A220-300, has a single pair of overwing exits, and that can accommodate up to 145 seats. Um, but Airbus management did note in Mirabel that a modification to the overwing design and the slides can get capacity up to 149 seats and that they can go further to a maximum of 160 seats. So let me quote what Airbus said specifically for the 160-seater. 
quote, it's an option under development, of course, and it requires two pairs of overwing doors, so that's the difference. It's available in design, but we have to have a customer that selects it. Once it's selected, then we'll go develop it with them. So very long story short, Max, while the A220 has been enjoying some really great PaxX love on social media because of the generally comfortable configurations that have been rolling out, Passengers should brace for the possibility of high-density configurations and, of course, for the possibility that a stretch version could ultimately be launched and this, too, could be packed to the gills with seats because densification is, after all, as we talk about a lot here, the general trend in industry right now with a few beautiful exceptions like this week's announcement from United that it's going to be the launch customer of a three-class 50-seat Bombardier CRJ <laughs> called the CRJ 550, which due to scope clause restrictions would be a super comfortable regional jet with even a self-serve bar up in first class. So Max, have you had a chance at all to check out all the social media love for Delta's A220? It's just entered commercial service with a bunch of aviation geeks on board <laughs> tweeting up a storm. Have you had a chance to check that out yet? Yes, yes. Yeah. They, they love it. The, those that have flown oh, on it uh, just really praise it uh, very completely. Uh, you don't hear too much in the way of criticisms about it either. It seems to be mostly mostly positive feedback. But it's interesting. Stretches are always interesting when you look at what would they encroach on in terms of other aircraft, if they would. And we talk about a stretch of the A220, and you start to think about, well, what is – the implication for Boeing 737s, what is the implication for other Airbus aircraft? Yeah. I mean, already the, the A319 is kind of <laughs> at odds with the, with the uh, CS. See, uh, I, I can't stop saying CS. Ah, oh, you can't. I know I, I've, I've had a hard time myself, right? I've had a hard time myself. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And, and you know, even with the uh, A320 family, uh, the possibility of a stretched A220 starts to uh, you know get into that territory too so it'll be interesting to see what the strategy is that Airbus might employ here if they do stretch this aircraft yeah, it sure does. And now Airbus management did say during this tour, because they were asked this very specific question about the encroachment on the 319, um, uh, you know, whether or not they would continue along the path of the 319 or if they would need to. And they said that they have no plans for stopping 319 assembly. That being said, if you do move into a stretch and this is uh, being produced at a lower cost point than the, uh, the 319, you could see where this could be heading, yes. uh, whether it is their general intent or not. So, yeah, that's kind of interesting. But, of course, one area where Airbus continues to have an advantage on this particular A220 is that even if they tighten up seat pitch, of course, and really max it out on terms of capacity for what they've already got, um, the seat width remains industry-leading because of the size of the cross-section of the aircraft. Like we talked about on the last podcast, you know, the even the Delta A220-100, it features seats with 18.6-inch width consistently. Now, this is, Max, this is better seat width than on the Airbus A320 family. You know, the mm. A320s generally have a standard 18-inch seat width. Now, Airbus has a product that um, has a a more comfortable passenger experience um, that is, as you say, getting kind of close to the to the 319 in terms of competitive uh, market space. Um, it would really be fascinating to see how this all plays out. And will PaxX play an important role in the success of this A220? I, th- I say all signs are pointing to yes, 
But, you know, you and I, we've been waiting for that kind of, at what point does PaxX really make a difference in terms of passengers booking their flights uh, outside of cost and frequency? And I don't know. It's, it's yeah. yet another, you know, it's yet another point to, to pay attention to here right now in terms of how this all shakes out. It's interesting. It is. And I think it's likely that the A220 may play a significant role in the long-term Airbus strategy. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. they're going to be looking at uh, where the market is going and, as, as you're saying, what the customers are demanding, uh, but also what is the competitor doing? What is Boeing doing? And where are they going? And uh, the right. A220 could play a key role here. It is, it is very fascinating. And and of course, Airbus just broke ground. What in January of the yeah. Mobile, Alabama final assembly plant. So yeah. uh, that's uh, a, a key part of the strategy. Now, the volume is not intended, at least as reported, to be very great. Right? Aren't they looking at maybe a maximum of four A220s a month. So it's a low production rate, but that's that's just now. And maybe that's just the the low initial uh, rate kind of plan. And I'm sure they're looking at the future capacity needs for that facility. Yeah, I will say that um, uh, Air Insight, again, interestingly enough, Addison Schoenlin, I believe you've interviewed him, Max, um, in the past. Yeah. Um, During the Airbus North America tour, that's something he brought up. He said, you know, with respect to your order book, are are some of these really definite in terms of – because there's a question mark with certain airlines um, around the world right now that are grappling with financial difficulties and will, uh, you know, these orders – definitely come to fruition in the in the form of delivered aircraft and i'm not sure what the the actual answer to that was actually if that was ever formally <laughs> if a solid answer was given there or not but i, I remember him asking that question and so yeah there's the, the next couple of years are going to be really you know key to understanding the demand for this aircraft but you know if it was to just go on passenger experience alone um the signs are very, very positive. Um, now, these avgeeks that are that were on the Delta um, A220, they seem pretty impressed with the IFE that we had discussed before, Max. That was jointly developed um, between Delta and GoGo. It's a seatback wireless IFE system. It looks like it's operating well, and passengers uh, seem to think it's akin to the Panasonic systems that are uh, across Delta's fleet, so that's good for passenger experience. One little tidbit that um, that I experienced when I was on board the Delta A220 in Mirabel, now we didn't get a chance to take any pictures, but the bulkhead seats um, on the Delta A220 are super snug. Um, and it's the one thing, it was kind of a surprise. I was like, wow, you know, this is a com- comfortable aircraft. I'm in first, but this particular aspect, if you have long legs, I really wouldn't recommend bulkhead so- seats in first on the Delta A220. But outside of that, it's pretty neat aircraft. <laughs> uh, Comfy. I can't wait. I'll have to find, maybe I'll find a destination that uh, allows me to fly on that. Just to, just to fly just to on do it. it. Yeah, I wouldn't yes. be the first person to have ever done that. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, next, uh, the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, has issued their 2019-2020 Most Wanted List of Transportation Safety Improvements. Now, they do this every year. Some people in the aviation industry tend to think of the NTSB as an aircraft accident investigation organization, and they are that, but not exclusively. 
They're just as much involved in other modes of transportation. In their most wanted issues, many of them span multiple transportation modes. But if we just look at the aviation issues, we see that the NTSB would like the FAA to address the gap in safety requirements between commercial airlines and those operating under Part 135 for air tour, air medical service, air taxi charter, and on-demand flights. Now, it's true that the NTSB recommendations are just that. They are recommendations only, but this particular one is noteworthy, I think, because as the NTSB says, all flights should be safe no matter the purpose of the flight or the type of aircraft. And currently, air medical service, air taxi, charter, and on-demand flights are not required to meet the same safety requirements as commercial airlines. Now, what does that mean? Most Part 135 organizations don't have a safety management system, or an SMS. They don't have flight data monitoring, that's FDM, and they don't have a controlled flight into terrain avoidance training program. That's commonly called CFIT. Now, as, as an aside, you'll note that Part 135 helicopter operators are required to have a CFIT training program, but the others are not. Now, the NTSB, of course, makes recommendations for their uh, most wanted list each year based on the investigations that they conduct. And and they give some examples of why uh, this is an important area. And they talk about the November 2015 fatal crash of a British aerospace HS-125 in Akron, Ohio. It's a business jet. And their investigation determined that an SMS would have mitigated the lack of compliance with standard operating procedures. Another example they give is an investigation of the fatal crash of a Cessna 208B Grand Caravan that was in October 2016, crashed into mountainous terrain in Alaska. That investigation also identified the lack of these safety programs. So to me, Mary, it seems like a no-brainer. It seems like an obvious situation where generally the commercial airlines are required to have these uh, safety systems in place, uh, but others are not. And I I, I would find it kind of hard-pressed to argue that others should be excluded. I hear you, Max. So we published a piece about the most wanted list that uh, Marissa Garcia penned for us. And Got an interesting response, actually, on LinkedIn. So I wanted to read it to you, and you tell me what you think. So said one gentleman, Surely one cannot expect a company using 50-year-old prop engine aircraft in Alaska to ferry passengers around to adopt all of the same additionally proposed equipment and procedures as a luxury executive jet operator flying out of New York City. There are also single-engine seaplane operators, which are integral to air taxi operations all along the coastal United States. Will their business model and fleet size be able to accommodate all of the recommended changes? Safety first must be the mandate, but we should also be very aware of the tendency to go beyond what is needed to truly avoid, eliminate altogether, or mitigate risks, quote-unquote, is what he said. I thought that was interesting, but again, these are recommendations, not law, but they seem like strong recommendations, Max. (laughs) Oh, they are. Yes. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, I I can understand the point that the uh, the writer there in LinkedIn uh, was yeah. trying to make and uh, some of these recommendations would 
have uh, a, a monetary cost uh, equipment or, or something. But to me, more broadly, what these kinds of systems do is establish a safety culture in an organization. And you can achieve that, I think, in an organization of, of any size. Now, maybe not with the uh, expense that a, a luxury private jet uh, operator might have uh, the ability to do or a commercial airline. Uh, but still, I think creating this environment of a safety culture is kind of what's needed in these cases. Sometimes it's just simple things like that that uh, can avoid fatal accidents. Right. But the the NTSB has some suggestions both for for operators and for regulators, um, but the NTSB would like to see operators uh, install a safety management system uh, in their operations, as, as well as the flight data monitoring. Um, that, of course, would have a, a cost implication. But they also say, and to use the NTSB's terminology, appropriately scaled to the size of your operation. Right. So the the idea is that uh, a safety management system would detect and correct unsafe deviation from company procedures before an accident occurs. So I think that's that's a pretty um, obvious thing to me anyway. Um, collecting data through the FDM, a flight data monitoring, uh, that might have greater cost implications for an operator, but that's uh, a recommendation that the NTSB makes. They also say that operators should use the analytical tools that are available um, from trade associations and others in the FAA to identify safety trends. And a big one is to incorporate CFIT, Controlled Flight into Terrain Avoidance Training Program. That's a training program. So especially if you're operating in uh, mountainous terrain, that's uh, something that I think you want to take very seriously. And it is a major cause of, uh, one of the major causes of, of accidents. Yes. That's what the NTSB is asking or recommending for operators. As far as for regulators, the NTSB would like the FAA to require that all Part 135 operators install the flight data recording devices uh, and also uh, work with operators to improve the training programs associated with this. So I think it's a good set of recommendations all in all. Yeah, it's definitely a good start, as you say, in getting the ball rolling. But, you know, as you know yourself, there are some NTSB recommendations that languish for decades yes. <laughs> without anyone doing anything about it. And actually, when I dove into this document, um, of course, it lists um, all sorts of transport safety items. It's not just aviation, of course. It's mobility. But um, as you and I have discussed, the NTSB has long been pushing for child restraint systems on board aircraft. And in fact, it um, has been issuing safety recommendations since 1979, asking that the FAA require children under age two to be in appropriately secured child restraints in their own seats. In the document, it says seat belts, child car seats, and child safety restraint systems in highway vehicles and on airplanes reduce the risk of injury and death, full stop. In this year's uh, issue of the Most Wanted list, the NTSB is recommending that the uh, exemption on commercial flights that allows children to be held in your lap, uh, that that be removed. They would much rather see child-approved uh, seats and not have a situation where you know, an adult, a parent, is holding their child on their lap because, as, as we all know, that's not very effective in, a, in an accident. 
a few other interesting things, uh, distractions comes up for uh, pilots. And this is mostly a general aviation recommendation that has to do with PEDs and pilots being distracted by that. Uh, commercial operations tend to have more of a sterile cockpit uh, kind of an approach. So that's why this applies a little bit more to uh, general aviation flying. Uh, they do address also uh, reducing fatigue-related accidents. Uh, again, the airlines have uh, pretty good duty hour regulations. But as the NTSB points out, there are other aviation personnel in safety-sensitive positions besides pilots, and that uh, perhaps they should be subject to also uh, rules that uh, limit the uh, you know the number of hours. Uh, insufficient sleep being a, a cause for a number of accidents. And a few others, uh, alcohol and drug impairment. Again, this is mostly directed toward general aviation pilots uh, where the uh, incident of uh, alcohol and drug impairment is is greater. Uh, I don't know. That, I, I don't think that general aviation pilots are more prone to, <laughs> to uh, drugs and alcohol. It may be just that uh, the airlines have uh, more extensive screening processes in place to uh, uh, affect how people treat drugs and alcohol before flying an airplane. So uh, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, interesting list. Uh, the NTSB, I think, always does a good job with this each year. But as you say, Mary, they're recommendations. They don't have any enforcement authority, so uh, others have to take action based on, on what they recommend. Yeah, I guess we shall see, Max. All right. Well, last but not least, and this is an interesting one, airlines are looking at creative ways to partner with brands. I love this stuff, Mary. I know you know a lot about it. <laughs> We've seen some things in recent weeks. American Airlines announced an arrangement that sees that carrier offering Apple Music for free to passengers on all aircraft equipped with Viasat high-speed internet. In China, a carrier called Lucky Air they teamed up with McDonald's on a very different kind of promotion. This was for the Chinese New Year. The airline slapped McDonald's brand throughout the aircraft. They engaged <laughs> in in-flight trivia games with the passengers, and they also provided giveaways linked to the promotion. Well, now the in-flight entertainment and connectivity industry is looking to place personalized, targeted advertising in front of airline passengers. Where have we seen this before? Mary, <laughs> you recently attended the Apex Tech Conference in Los Angeles, and programmatic advertising for IFEC was a big topic of discussion. What can you tell us? Should we be concerned that they're going to be inundating us with in-flight advertising? <laughs> Well, ads are coming, that's for sure, Max. Um, but on the CPAC IFE front specifically, we already do see some general advertising against movies and other entertainment content on airlines. And I'm personally reminded of a flying British Airways last year. And I remember thinking to myself, they had some rather consistent advertising uh, in advance of the movies. Um, and their brand partners were rather clear. Um, but technology limitations have kind of prevented a more targeted, personalized experience such as what we've kind of grown accustomed to experiencing on the ground, especially over the last couple of years. And so these limitations have made it more difficult to monetize in-flight entertainment and connectivity. 
And there's actually still a fair amount of work that needs to be done, as I learned here in Los Angeles. So APEX, for those who are unaware, is a nonprofit association that comprises airlines, airframers, passenger experience, stakeholders. Um, and they realized that kind of in this brave new world of programmatic advertising that the IFE content service providers are going to have to accommodate new technical requirements to certify ad impression reporting systems and really kind of everyone getting on the same page as to how they're going to address this. So as a starting point, Apex has formed what's called the Airline Advertising and Ancillary Revenue Committee, and they're in the process of agreeing a glossary of terms that can be used by the industry. So that's step one, a glossary. And this week I interviewed uh, Global Eagles Vice President of Global Advertising, Kim Creven, who's on this particular committee, and she and others in the group are effectively working to ensure that industry has a common language when bringing programmatic advertising to IFEC. And she said that instead of advertising being an afterthought, it's something that needs to be thought of uh, well before the portals and the screens and the wireless IFE is built and offered, that it needs to be more proactive instead of reactive, which is how it has been handled for years, uh, which I thought was interesting. So the the IFEC industry is realizing programmatic advertising is coming. It's, it's, it's important because it helps to monetize IFEC, um, which makes it a better value proposition for these airlines. But once industry is able to surmount some of these technology hurdles and everyone gets on the page, same page, then yes, it looks like we can expect more ads, but that they will be more relevant uh, than what we're seeing now, more personalized than what we're seeing now. Um, uh, based on you know the data that will be available effectively to the airlines and and, and how far they want to go with it really how how far they want to go I don't know Max like when I go get on board I fly Southwest a lot um, uh, you know they do a lot in the way of kind of baseline advertising such as credit card ads and stuff like that but nothing that really like jumps out at me and says Mary Kirby this is what you want <laughs> you know <laughs> like you want this pair of jeans from long tall sally at a 36 inch insane like that's that would be like getting my getting me to type in my credit card details at that point i don't know um what do you think max does it does this scare you a little bit well who's the best at this google and facebook probably right. they they yeah. do this better than probably um anybody else when it comes to targeted advertising and i think that's possible because they hold what i call the golden asset yeah. Your personal information in vast quantities of your behavioral data. Now, there are those, including me sometimes, that uh, don't like that concept. Uh, there's another point of view, which is that, well, you're going to get ads anyway. Would you rather get ads that have no interest for you or totally not applicable? Or would you like to see something, since you're going to see something anyway, uh, that's at least related to uh, what your interests or needs might be. Right. So uh, this is an interesting uh, period uh, for for IFE and for uh, airlines providing uh, a platform or platforms for this kinds of uh, advertising. Are they going to be able to match what the Googles and Facebooks of the of the world can do? And I don't think they can replicate that, but I think they can right. employ partners who do have that kind of data. And then with with that in hand, uh, targeted advertising, I think, becomes uh, a little easier for them. Yeah, for sure. And, and the airlines want to be careful as well, because if you're flying Delta, and, and, and Kim mentioned this this week in this interview, if you're flying Delta, for example, Delta doesn't want to advertise American Airlines. 
to you and vice versa in flight. So does it make more sense to have somewhat of a more of a private network for some of these airlines? To It, it, it gets kind of complex, but ultimately airlines have their favorite brands, you know, and who they want to work with and also who they want to work with to help differentiate their products. As I mean, this takes us kind of back to the arrangement with Apple Music. American Airlines, this is like a really kind of technically unique way of advertising Apple Music to the American Airlines audience. So this is very much headed down the road, at least, of these kind of creative collaborations that both benefit passengers and help an airline to differentiate its product. Um, And so, you know, I don't know, it's really interesting to see, and I think we're going to see much more of it. But in China, as you mentioned, we've seen kind of like the polar opposite of when you can slap a brand everywhere. And I mean, everywhere. Now, Max, did you read this piece? Uh, it's fascinating. <laughs> yes, I looked at the the photographs from from inside the plane. It just seemed kind of spammy. <laughs> I mean, the McDonald's yeah. logos, and it was just everywhere. And uh, just to walk into that on the on the face of it, it doesn't provide me with with value as opposed to what's happening with American Airlines in Apple Music because, I mean, that's valuable. Now, mm-hmm. some people may not care about listening to Apple Music on the on their flight, uh, but uh, there's there's no negative associated with offering it as opposed to sort of spamming the interior of the, uh, the airplane with, <laughs> with logos. You wouldn't want it to look like a subway car or something like that with you know, advertising all over the overhead bins and on the IFE system. And there is a limit, I think, to what people will accept. That's actually that would make a great headline, Max. Spamming the interior. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, yeah, certainly. And some of the reaction on social media was kind of effectively that, like someone just was like, "This is just so awful." Like, <laughs> but on the flip side, just playing devil's advocate, if this would enable ultra low cost fares, you know, if if an airline were to reach some of these kind of really different types of promotions with major brands that would help offset the cost of the actual ticket, would passengers care? Would this kind of would the new generation of passengers care? And and would the new generation of passengers see it as spam or just see it as product, you know, placement advertising and and look the other way and just get into their device? Or I don't know. I just wonder sometimes if I'm viewing it from a, an older fuddy-duddy mentality or, you know, or if I, if I should free my mind here. To me, I, I, I don't want to be surrounded by uh, McDonald's brand everywhere um, in flight, but I don't know. Maybe younger generation? In my head, as you were uh, speaking, I, I'm saying, no, 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 until you got to the younger generation. And right. then, it, then the switch flipped in my head uh, just as uh, you know, as, as you said uh, after that, that uh, maybe we're just viewing it in, in a different context in the way that the younger folks would. But uh, and you might be right. There, there certainly is a, a different oh, standard um, amongst younger people, I think, as to what's acceptable in this uh, and, and, what's, uh, and what's not. So, um, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe they should put us out to pasture, Mary. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> 
I know. On, on any given day, we're either the, you know, the, the sensible ones, Max, or we're, you know, pissing people off at one point or another. But no, it's, it is interesting. And one thing is clear is that these airlines are really starting to get quite creative, whether it's inside the cabin, um, via the in-flight entertainment and connectivity. Um, to the latter point, quickly, it is important to find a way to monetize it a little bit better. Um, you know, that's been a, a, a real pain point for uh, specifically the connectivity providers, because as we all know, passengers want to be connected, but they seem far less interested in paying for that connection, you know, especially in a world where they've grown accustomed to free Wi-Fi and cafes and hotels and their own mobile connectivity and everything else. So if you can find a way to offset the cost of providing that connection and you can do it in a more personalized, targeted way, that seems to make a ton of sense. And so I I think that's where we're headed um, and certainly where the Apex Association is focusing um, uh, some of its attention on and to the relief, I think, of industry that is kind of like really looking at ways to, to try and monetize. So... Oh, as they say, someone's got to pay for it, Max. But um, we are rapidly coming to a close. Uh, we want to thank our listeners and our sponsor, the Jetliner Cabins ebook app. And remember, you can find us online at runwaygirlnetwork.com and on Apple and Google Podcasts. Um, be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at at Runway Girl. And remember to use the PAXX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. We would love to have you. And please join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.